This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 147, Big. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. They say everything's bigger in Texas. The bluster, the egos, the stakes, the belt buckles, you name it, we can supersize it. But bigger comes with its problems, big commitments, big disappointments, big failures, and big consequences among them. This week we'll discuss big faith and why you should be trying to find it, big dreams that have always characterized the Lone Star Estate, big work from the greatest composer you've never heard of, and the big version of an old favorite. Let's start with what I've been preaching. A conversation about big faith has to take us to Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. There's about a half a dozen sermons we could preach out of this text, but I want to focus on the idea of striving for great faith and how this centurion, this Gentile, was able to find it somehow, some way, when so many of Jesus' contemporaries, what he calls here the sons of the kingdom, so many of them could not find faith. No matter how many miracles Jesus did, including this remarkable one here, healing this servant from a distance, I would like to think that If you are interested in having faith, you would want great faith. Why not, after all? Why not aspire to something higher, something nobler, something that drives you closer and closer to your Heavenly Father, to your Savior, Jesus Christ? If this Gentile, this centurion, this enemy of the people of God, essentially, if he can find great faith, not just faith, but great faith, surely we can also. But we have to take some lessons from the centurion and from this episode in Jesus' life here. We have to realize, as the centurion obviously did, that Jesus does not have to cater to my own personal preferences. In fact, we don't even ask him to do that. So often we ask Jesus to jump when we say jump and go where we say go and minister to us in the way that we would prefer personally. And we forget what it means to have a Lord in the first place. The centurion knew what authority meant. And oftentimes we forget We forget that we are under Jesus. He is the king, and we are his subjects. We have to break away from this idea of requiring Jesus, essentially, to come and minister to our needs on our schedule, on our terms, allowing us to keep what we want to keep and discard what we want to discard. That's not what authority is. That's not what faith calls us for. 
But we also are reminded here that Jesus doesn't care where you come from. He doesn't care about your background. You can be a Jew or a Gentile. You can be young or old, male or female. It doesn't make any difference. And this is part of a much bigger picture that we see played out throughout the scriptures. Admittedly, most of the Bible is talking about the nation of Israel, but not all of it. And every once in a while, even in the Old Testament, we get these little snippets where people not of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob find the Lord and they find faith. Rahab is a classic example of this in Joshua chapter 2, where she welcomes in the spies and expresses a confidence in this God that she's never experienced, the God of these people that she has never met before. But she's heard stories, and that's enough for her. And she's called a witness in James chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 11 as one who is an example to us of finding faith. I don't doubt for a second that her faith was somewhat immature in the moment. How could it not be? But it was strong enough to motivate her, to get her to change her life, to upend everything she'd ever known. Zacchaeus works similarly. Zacchaeus, a tax collector in Jericho, someone who is despised by the people, he seeks Jesus out, climbing up into the sycamore tree, as the kids love to sing about, and finds Jesus, and Jesus finds him in that spot. He wants to commune with him. He wants to eat with him, and ultimately changes Zacchaeus' life. And it works the other way, too. Caiaphas is at the peak of Jewish society as the high priest. He, of all people, is in position to understand Jesus, to prioritize Jesus, to seek the kingdom, and he chooses not to. And he doesn't get a pass simply because of his background, because of his experience, because of his service. You either have faith or you do not have faith. Jesus calls us to believe. He calls us to seek him. And once we have decided to seek him, to seek him deeply, It's not enough for Jesus to get us to climb out of the boat and walk on the water with him, as Peter did briefly in Matthew chapter 14. He wants us to keep walking. He wants us to walk all the way to him. See this commitment through. Be the kind of Christian, the kind of believer, the kind of disciple that seeks Jesus out every day in every circumstance. Jesus promises great things for those who will persevere, who will push through. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, the parable of the mustard seed. I think that's what it's talking about there. This gospel gets into our heart and dominates our lives, where it defines us completely and encourages other people to take shelter in the shade that comes from our own personal faith. But realize, great faith comes with great responsibility. Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, the one to whom much is given, much is going to be required. If you seek this faith, you need to go in all the way. And if you get in all the way and you receive all the marvelous blessings that come with Jesus, you need to realize that there is a cost for that. It is a manageable cost. It is a cost that you should welcome with open arms, in fact, because of what you're getting for it. It's the kingdom of heaven that is the treasure in the field. You're willing to sell everything that you have to get it, but you will have to sell everything that you have. There is a cost. We are blessed to be able to pay it, but there is a cost. This is what I've been reading. When I think of big books, I think of James Mishner. And I'm not sure Texas is my absolute favorite of the books that I've read of his. I loved Centennial. I loved Alaska. I enjoyed Hawaii and Chesapeake very much. But Texas has got to be right up toward the top. Maybe it's because of my own personal investment. And maybe it was Missioner's favorite also. I don't know about that necessarily, but I do know that he retired to Texas. He died in Austin. He didn't retire to the Chesapeake. He didn't retire 
to Colorado or Alaska. He didn't even retire to Hawaii. He retired to Texas and committed himself wholly to Texas once he got here. At one point, he was the largest individual donor in the history of the University of Texas. So he went Texas and he went Texas whole hog or whole brisket might be a better expression actually in Texas. And because of that commitment, I am willing to give him a pass. In one of his books, I think it was Centennial, he made a comment about one of his characters eating a tamale and eating an enchilada and not being able to tell the difference between those two. I got the strong impression that that was based on Missioner's own personal experience, which is horrifying to anyone who has any experience with Mexican food. I am going to let that pass because of the great work that he did in his book, Texas. It's kind of embarrassing, actually, being a native Texan looking to this outsider born in Pennsylvania who did all of this research and found what it means in a lot of ways to be a Texan and helping to put into words the things that I have really essentially thought my entire life. A big part of it is this whole bigness thing that Texas is so famous for. The big dreams that people have, the Davy Crockett thing, the idea of go to Texas and make your fortune and become famous and take over the world, all that kind of thing. Going all the way back to Coronado, I love the way that he takes it back to the early part of the 16th century. This great Spanish nobleman decides he's going to find the city of El Dorado, not just make his fortune, but make the greatest discovery of all time. And he sacrifices everything and he loses everything. That's the way it works sometimes. Dreams sometimes fail us, and they fail people in Texas too. But if you buy into the idea of becoming great, if you buy into the idea of living life big, then you find a way to focus on positive things instead of negative things. You'll have plenty of opportunity to experience negative things. If you live life on earth in Texas or anywhere else, bad things are going to happen. But if you choose a lifestyle, if you choose a pursuit a value system, an end goal that you truly believe in, and you commit yourself to that, then you set yourself up for greatness. And that is the story of Texas, essentially. It's the story of our life in Christ also, by the way. In Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7, and many other places, Paul goes through a variety of difficulties and hardships in his walk with Christ. And he never seems to let that get him down, especially here in Philippians chapter 4. We see him discussing this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can have this peace that passes understanding. You can have this sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and glory even to a very real extent, even in this life and certainly in the next life. If you commit yourself to this task, you'll find that sense of joy, that sense of satisfaction, fulfillment. But it is much easier to find that if you dig in deep, if you truly commit yourself to this process, if you think long-term, if you commit yourself to the work. Galatians 6 verse 9, we should not grow weary in well-doing. We're going to reap, he says, if you do not faint, if you do not hesitate, if you continue to work. If you continue to give yourself to this process, God is in charge of this after all, and he can and he will work great things in you if you put yourself in a place to succeed. But you have to put yourself there and you have to leave yourself there. And having done so, except there is, as we've already mentioned, negative consequences to this. There is a price to be paid. I think a lot of people seem to think that people wander into Texas and 
great things start happening. Money starts dropping on them from heaven. They become filthy, stinking rich just all of a sudden. It doesn't always work that way. One of the most famous Texans of all, David Crockett, remember, was in Texas for a grand total of about two months. And then he got killed. He didn't get rich. He got famous, but he didn't get rich. And that's the way it has been for many, many others. But being a part of this plan, being a part of God's work in the church, God's eternal kingdom that he is working in us, that is enough to call us out of the world, call us out of our comfortable surroundings, and call us to a grander thing, a much tougher thing, a harder thing, a more uncomfortable thing, perhaps, in the short term. But we believe that in the big picture, in the long run, it will be better for us. That's our walk with Christ in a nutshell. Paul writes about this concept in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And if you back up a little bit, back to verse number 8 or so, he writes, For bodily discipline is only for a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So we believe in this. We believe in this exercise. But he writes there in verse 10, For this we labor and strive Because we have fixed our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. We believe that God is going to work this thing in us, but we have to give ourselves to the process. We have to believe. If Davy Crockett and Coronado and all these other people can believe in Texas, then surely we can believe in Jesus. This is what I've been hearing. For those who are not fans of orchestral music, Gustav Marler's greatest claim to fame likely is that he was a cousin of Beyonce. Yes, that Beyonce. Eighth cousin, four times removed, to be more specific. For those who are fans of orchestral music, of course, Marler has a place of his own in the pantheon of the greats. Mahler is the one who redefined what the symphony could be. And some might argue that he broke the symphony. He was the last in a long line of Germanic composers, going back all the way to Mozart, who had worked on symphonies and refined them and honed them and brought them up to times with regard to improvements in musical instruments and venues and such matters as that. By the time Mahler died in 1911, he had accomplished things that no other composer ever had. Mahler is famous for works of music with extreme length, extreme size, extreme sound, extreme dissonance. The bigger the better, it would seem, was the philosophy of Mahler. His eighth symphony is sometimes called the Symphony of a Thousand. And it's called that because when properly performed, it literally has a thousand performers. An enormous orchestra two choruses, a children's chorus, a separate brass band, multiple soloists, on and on it goes. What are you going to do after someone puts on a show like that? So in the minds of many, Mahler was the greatest symphony conductor and symphony composer of all time. Certainly the biggest. But the question obviously comes up, is bigger better? And the fact that you likely have never heard of Gustav Mahler is an indication that maybe bigger isn't better. And certainly when you look at the story of Jesus, the importance of size becomes less and less clear. Bigger is not necessarily a problem. It's not necessarily a drawback, but it certainly does not seem to be something that Jesus sought after. 
nor something that he encouraged us to seek after. John 6, verse 66, for instance, the crowds that he had had in times past began to diminish, and Jesus appears to be okay with that. He's discouraged, of course, because people do not want to come and listen to the bread of life. But he is not pulling some kind of trick out of his sleeve so that people will continue to stay when they're not interested in spiritual things. The bigger crowds were not the better crowds. In fact, it seems that crowds of one were Jesus' favorite, especially judging from the book of John, his encounter with Nicodemus, and especially his encounter with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, some of the best teaching that Jesus ever did. Our prayers, another example of this, Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, that these grand, grandiose prayers that apparently were commonplace in those times, and perhaps to a certain degree are still commonplace, were not really what God was looking for. Go in your closet and pray. The model prayer that he gives us in that context is very stripped down, very streamlined, very minimalistic, you might say. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus points out a widow who was giving two mites as opposed to these other rich Jews who were contributing enormous amounts to the upkeep of the temple. Jesus said, this is the gesture that I appreciate, the one who gives everything that she has. It's not a big thing in terms of quantity or size or significance in the conventional way of judging significance. But it's significant to me, he says. And it's an interesting contrast to what we read in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Ananias and Sapphira surely are contributing much, much more to a spiritual cause, to a greater spiritual cause. Of course, they're part of the kingdom of God at this point. And their gesture winds up with them dying, because the important thing, according to Peter and according to the Holy Spirit, was that they had blasphemed they had lied to the Holy Spirit. The size of what they were doing was not the important thing. The important thing was what they were doing with the gesture. Were they drawing closer to God, or were they trying to improve their own standing in front of their brethren? Physical growth, numerical growth of congregations comes up also. In Revelation 3, verse 8, and again in verse 11, we see a couple of churches pointed out there. Philadelphia has a little power, and they are encouraged to keep what they have, to not lose ground where they are. That little thing that they have was important, and they would not lose their reward if they persevered. That's very much unlike the church in Sardis, which is described as having a name that they live in their dead earlier in that same chapter. Big is not a problem or a blessing in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Big is just big. The goal is not to increase in size, as the term size is generally defined. The goal is always Jesus grow in our faith, grow in our commitment, make those things big, absolutely. And don't get sidetracked by what kind of measurable things may come from that. If the goal is Jesus, we can have confidence that at any size, at any place in our development, we can draw closer to Jesus and receive ultimately the biggest reward possible for the effort that we make. This is what I've been playing. Well, Santa Claus brought me the upgraded version of the Ticket to Ride Europe map, and I am thrilled. We have lots of Ticket to Ride maps. I have never played the Europe map, though. We didn't own it. The Europe map has a really good reputation. A lot of people think it's their favorite Ticket to Ride game. So we kicked around getting it various times. And last year, when the 15th anniversary edition came out, that zoomed to the top of my list, and sure enough, I got it, and it's great. The game features a brand new board, 
fancier artwork, more colorful. The cards themselves are full size and pieces of art, really. But the big thing is the map is much, much larger, and the tracks are much, much larger. In fact, it barely fits on our game table. Because the tracks are larger, they require larger player pieces. If you know Ticket to Ride, you know that the game basically is about putting little plastic pieces of train that represent a train route that you are putting together from this place to that place to some other place. And in the original game, it is just a shell of colored plastic. Nothing fancy. These are fancy. They're all distinct. The different colors represent different kinds of train pieces. You may have an oil car, a tanker car. You may have logs that are being carried, box cars, whatever. And they're all very intricate, very interesting. And I had this wild fancy in my head that maybe we could use these upgraded pieces in all of our Ticket to Ride games. Very quickly, I realized that's not going to work. Because the train tracks are larger, the spaces on the tracks are larger, that means the train pieces are larger and therefore will not fit on the regular-sized map, which is kind of a bummer, I guess. But I'll get by. It's worth noting here that if I had already owned a copy of the Europe map, I would not have asked for the upgraded map. I don't spend money like that, not even on board games. This is Hal Heyman's famous tightwad talking you here. I would not have felt the need to upgrade. But since I didn't have the map, might as well get the nice one. It reminded me a bit of the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 5 about the patch that's put on a damaged garment. And then he talks about wineskins in verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. He's saying this in the context of his ministry and the kingdom that he is pronouncing. The people who are listening to him, by and large, have a pretty comfortable relationship, in their own minds at least, with God. They're not looking for a major change, and that's exactly what Jesus is giving them, a very major change. And they are not inclined to go along with that. They're comfortable with their life the way that it is. They don't want to upgrade. Jesus calls us to something higher, though. He tells us not to be content with the life that we already have. However fulfilling, however satisfying we may find it, the life that he offers us in Jesus is fundamentally different, and it is incompatible with our previous life in many ways. There may not be a way for you to keep the things that you like about the old style and still adopt the new style. Galatians 2 verse 20 talks in rather extreme terms about being crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The old lifestyle, the old priority system, that has been done away with. If I have to get rid of certain aspects of my old life to embrace Jesus, I will do that, he says. I will not find my contentment in squeezing Jesus into my old lifestyle, my old wineskins. I want something new. I want something fresh from Jesus. And if that requires an upheaval of my life, that's exactly what I'm going to offer. And take it to the next level even after having received Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10 talks about how we are supposed to excel still more in our service, especially in that context in our love for one another. Don't be content with simply being saved. Don't be content with simply feeling like Jesus is your Lord and Savior, seeing yourself on the track to heaven, and then just stopping. That's not an option for us. We're told over and over again that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, we should not be content with the status quo, whatever that status quo happens to be. Don't hesitate to leave these lesser things behind. There is a great new reality that Jesus has offered to us. 
And if it means giving up the old way of doing things, we need to be prepared for doing that. Now, if you're trading an old board game for a new board game, that's a judgment call, obviously. That's a matter of your own personal finances, your own personal preferences. I don't care one way or the other as far as that goes. But if you are debating in your mind whether it's a good idea to hold on to your old lifestyle that you knew previous to Jesus, or maybe giving some of that up or even all of that up so that you can have a life with Jesus, there is no debate about that decision. Paul likens it to taking out the garbage in Philippians chapter 3. That old life that he had, the, the prestige, the honor, the acclaim, the bragging rights, if you will. He lost all of that when he came to Jesus, and he doesn't regret it for a second. He has tossed it out because he realizes what he has in Jesus, the hope that he has, the ambition for higher existence, for heavenly things. That's all that really matters. Don't hesitate in your own spiritual struggle to cut out parts of your life that are irrelevant or even deleterious to your walk with Christ. Jesus offers you something better than this, something higher, something more noble. Grab it while you can. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.